0: Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Welcome to another episode of the Speaker's Corner. We like to use these shorter episodes to make specific arguments in an audio essay format rather than the longer form discussions that most of our episodes use. If you've an idea for Speaker's Corner you'd like to pitch, please, by all means, reach out and let us know. We'd love to talk with you about your idea. As I record this, it's November 23rd, 2020. Joe Biden has won the presidency, but we're still in this limbo of uncertainty. Is something going to happen with the certifications of the state electoral votes? Will there be some kind of surprise reversal in one location that calls the whole election into question? And what was that black stream of liquid running down both sides of Giuliani's face? But when Pennsylvania was called for Biden... All of the major news outlets called Biden the president-elect. I was pleased. Well, to some degree, I was pleased. Listeners of this podcast will note that I've almost nothing in common with Democrats, but just slightly more in common with them than with conservatives, but only just slightly. I was pleased because... I've reached a point of exhaustion with the tone, the vinegar and bile, the overt rhetoric of hate and rabid examples of corruption that have enveloped us for four years. It's always been a part of our culture, but to have a president use his bully pulpit and Twitter feed to feed his insatiable narcissism has been difficult for me to handle. So I felt something release in me at the news. A kind of motivation to rhetorically comfort my conservative neighbors. To place my hand on their collective shoulders and say, Even though I am pleased, I understand that you're afraid and worried and troubled, and that matters to me. In a few places, all at the same time, I shared a message that said, I love you, and I always will, and I always would, even when we don't understand each other. What I hadn't prepared for was the blinding rage that this incited in so many. And I'm not referring to internet trolls who have nothing better to do than flame up social media. Rather, some of the harshest and most caustic reactions came from people I thought loved me unconditionally. We've shared dark nights of the soul, mourned loss, celebrated new life, mended wounds, and shared communion together. One particularly gobsmacking reaction was from one of my closest friends ever, who responded by telling me that we were no longer brothers, but enemies. I thought it was just poorly articulated hyperbole at first, and so I responded, I'm always your brother, and I will never consent to be your enemy. He replied, If what you say on your podcast is true, we are enemies. Now, don't hear me saying that I lost a friend. I love him too much to let him go, and he'll have to endure my steadfast love until he comes back around. Or, as I explained to one of our mutual friends, I love him too much to let him fail this badly. But his statement rubbed up against a core question I've had on this podcast. What do I want to persuade people to believe? And what am I actually persuading them to believe? I've said a number of times on this podcast that I'm really not all that interested in persuading folks to be socialist libertarians. Cole is interested in persuading you to his political and economic perspective, but I'm not motivated to persuading you to mine. At the end of the day, I couldn't care less. Our differences are merely a perfect stage to demonstrate something deeper, or, as Paul would say, a more excellent way. And I know that while Cole is interested in persuading folks to free market libertarianism, that more excellent way is immeasurably more important to him as well. But there are three distinct interpretations of what Cole and I are doing. One is that we are arguing perspectives for the sake of figuring out how Christians should vote. That is what my new enemy is hearing. I have staked out a place in the public square where he believes Christians should not be, and so I am his enemy. The second is that we are arguing because we have so much fun doing it. I get that interpretation. We do have so much fun doing it. It is a source of entertainment for me to rile Cole up, and I've never been in a conversation with Cole where a good Seinfeld reference couldn't bring us into raucous laughter. But there have been more than a few times where folks have responded to one of us with some tip on how we could have argued better. I'm not out to win Cole over. In fact, I have often said on the podcast that it would be a sad day indeed if I ever did win him over. I want Cole to fly his flag. I want Cole to win arguments against me. We're not fighting to win in the same way that sparring partners are not boxing to win. We're talking out loud to each other. We just happen to talk out loud to each other using our outside voices from time to time. But the third is what I think, for my own part, I have intended. I want to call the church to be pilgrims. One of my favorite stories of Abraham is when Sarah dies and he's looking for a place to bury her. After all of God's promises of descendants, as many as the sands on the seashore or stars in the sky and a land that God would show him, Abraham has a single son of promise and no land. In fact, he has no place to bury Sarah. And so he says to the Hittites, I am a stranger in a strange land. Give me a place among you to bury my dead. Living with God and in God's promise has put Abraham in an odd situation. He's a pilgrim. I think that we are strangers in a strange land. From my point of view, being Christians in the public square is much akin to Abraham living among the Hittites. We have to bury our dead. But our interaction with the public square is in and of itself an ironic reminder that we are strangers. I think Christianity, particularly in the West and most especially in the United States, has lost any sense of sojourning. As Exhibit A of my case, I'd argue that a major point of evidence that Christianity has found a comfortable place among the Hittites would be the cozy relationship between the Church and conservatism. A common epistemological value for conservatism is the commitment to tradition, to the way things were and have been. I think this is sometimes unfairly characterized as pining for Mayberry, but I don't think it's unfair to note that conservatism tends to worry about what we're losing. Donald Trump's campaign slogan encapsulated this nostalgia by promising to, quote, make America great again. We used to be something, and we need to return to the values, the practices, and policies that were so very good for us. And for the majority of American Christianity, there is an appreciable desire to preserve and protect what we fear may be lost. Listen to the way that folks talk about the institute of marriage and what they fear is lost if marriage is available to relationships of different sexual identities. Listen to the concerns that the nuclear family has been destroyed. Listen to the fear that prayer will be disallowed in schools. Listen to the belief that different worldviews are going to have equal or even dominant representation in the public square. Listen to the ways that preachers decry postmodern thinking or East Coast values or New World Orders. Perhaps it's no surprise, then, that many Christians do reflexively pine for Mayberry. In fact, I know of a Bible study that some churches do that is based upon watching an episode of Andy Griffith and then reflecting on some message. This kind of cracker barrel, salt of the earth, old-timey nostalgia is a warm blanket to many of the Christians I know and love. And while a good number of our neighbors would also point out that those days were indeed darker and more insidious for the wives of violent husbands, children victimized by trusted adults, women harassed in the workplace, minorities marginalized in the public square, and people with disabilities hidden away in institutions, I think that there's another problem. We haven't lived as strangers among the Hittites. Instead, many white evangelicals have found comfort there. Yearn to return to, or maybe even just hold on to a little bit of, those days when America seemed a little more like home to white Christians. Here's the kicker. Being strangers isn't about being holier or more moral or separate from our neighbors. We should be holy just as our Heavenly Father is holy, and sure, that means I hold myself accountable to a code of behavior, But do you want to know something that makes Christians really strangers in a strange land? It's when we choose to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's when we choose to abandon the associations that bring about enmity and division. And when we choose to embrace compassion, empathy, and mercy. It's when we put away transactional relationships and embrace agape, steadfast love, and long suffering. It's when we decide to pour out forgiveness to others because God has poured it out to us. Too many conflate their views on power, commerce, and justice with their faith, and when faith becomes tied to institutions, conventions, culture, and public policy, we Christians are inevitably going to cry out when we think we're losing them. Worse, we will ultimately find that our faith has become a vassal to these concerns, and we are left at enmity with those that we thought we loved." This is why I am convinced that the people of God, the brothers of Abraham, the strangers in a strange land, do not find brotherhood in a specific economic policy, nor do we find enemies in those who disagree with our position on an education policy. Being a member of the body of Christ is an all-consuming existential state regardless of one's context. I am either a member of Christ's body and a brother to all who are also a part of his body, or I'm a member of an organization that lives by the works of the flesh, which include enmity, strife, anger, dissent, and division. I am either a part of God's agape, or I am part of an economic value system. I am either a part of the work of pouring ourselves out, or I'm part of an effort to grasp what I fear I'm about to lose. It's one or the other. And I think it's time for Christians, especially those of us in the United States, to decide, are we disciples or are we some grotesque homunculus of love and hate, unity and factions, brotherhood and war, church and state? Cole and I don't get along because we share stuff in common, even though sharing stuff in common makes it all the more fun. We get along because we both belong to Christ who bears his fruit in us. The third tenet we rehearse every episode says it all. We are brothers first. Everything else are just details. We can argue about them, but we will no more allow them to separate us from the love we share in Christ than I'm willing to part with my own left hand. In fact, Cole is left-handed and right-aligned, and I need for him to stay left-handed and right-aligned. I need for him to remind me that this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. I need my brother to be my brother so fiercely and so steadfastly that after the world passes away and the universe itself has ceased to be, Cole and me and all who have longed for his appearing stand in the throne room with Christ's name on our foreheads. We're taking a hiatus from this podcast, partly because Cole and I are navigating the shifting responsibilities of our day jobs, partly because I think all of us could use some time to just breathe and stop talking about politics for a short while, but partly because Cole and I want to be sure that we're accomplishing what we want to accomplish with this program. If you can listen, even for just a few minutes, and find a reason to conclude that I'm not your brother— or that I'm your enemy because I believe differently than you, then either we are really bad at our jobs, and I would like to be better at our jobs, or you are bad at understanding what it means to belong to Christ, and I would like to help you be better at belonging to Christ. That's what we've been hoping this podcast would do.